How are you this morning? You good? It's good to be with all of you. This morning being the first Sunday of Advent, I wanted to preach about hope. And so that took me to Psalm 39, uh, where David says, uh, Oh now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Um, Friends, there really isn't anything else to hope in. <laughs> but we have a living God. Let me read, let me read uh, Psalm 39 for you as we begin this morning. And we'll go over some of the verses in more detail. Uh, David says, I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent, I held my peace to no avail. And my, my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. O Lord, make me know my end. And what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I'm spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my ears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me, that I might that I might smile again before I depart and am no more. Jesus, there are times when we come to psalms like this and they don't really encourage us, at least in the first reading. In the first reading, they discourage us. And yet, Lord, there's great hope in this psalm. There's a recognition that you're a God who listens. And because you listen to us, and we so desperately need you to listen to us, because you listen to us, there is hope in this world. Because we know that Jesus is coming soon. Be in this message that I give. May it be your message, your words, your heart. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm getting it. I do think I'm getting it. But I don't see it. I don't think you got it. That's what I pressed.
You see, it's not just me. Um, and it's okay. I don't have to have it. No, just give it a second. Just give it a second? Okay. Um, well, did you have a great Thanksgiving? Yes. Did you? Was it good? Yes. Did you have family and friends over, perhaps, you know? Um, we had fun. We, I'm going to give you a, a friend of mine to pray for today because we had a, a friend over to my house. But his, his name is Wade. And Wade, I hope you're listening to this because if you are, you're the man. You're the great man. And you, unfortunately, I continue to beat you in all these various games like Canasta and so forth. But whatever. Uh, I'm good now? Well, wait, anyway, uh, I'm telling the congregation to pray for you because you're my friend and I love you. All right? So just, just, just you could pray this week for a guy named Wade. That'd be great. So, all right. Thank you so much, Brittany. I have no idea what you did, but thank you so much. Okay, so this morning we begin with, and maybe it's not a big surprise for you, but we begin with one of my favorites. We'll begin with, can, we, can you see that at all? Can you see Calvin up there? Yeah, I mean, this, is, this comic strip was, was done many years ago, but, but uh, I, I love this. You know, Calvin is standing upon the earth. He's on top of the world. And some of you may feel that way. You may feel like you're on top of the world. Things are going great for you and so forth. But you know, what's, you know what happens sometimes when you're on top of the world? The world kind of like shifts. And in this case, the world actually got a little smaller. So that second frame there. Calvin's on top of the world, but wait a minute. The world's getting smaller. Is the world getting smaller today? I can't believe how small the world is today. The internet has shrunk the world. The phone, our phone systems have shrunk the world. The world is like really small. Uh, this is good news and bad news. For Calvin, it's not so good. He's getting a little bit nervous. And then you get to the third slide. Oh boy, he's really losing his balance. And then the fourth slide, he, he's in big trouble. He's Desperate because the world has gotten so small and is, has no foundation in his life. Um, anyone here today feel like their life is slipping? Because that's what that's about, uh, the life that is slipping. Uh, if I got you alone privately, I, that, I know that there'd be some of you who would tell me that your life is slipping. It doesn't feel stable. There are problems that you have. Um, you might even say that you're desperate. Anyone here feel desperate? You don't have to stand up. I'm just, it's just a question. Anyone here feel desperate? Um, you might be familiar with the old quote, when you're at the end of your rope, tie a knot. Tie a knot and hold on. But, um, you know, some of us get so desperate we can't even find the rope. We can't even find the rope to tie. We're like Calvin falling off into oblivion and that kind of thing. Um, question remains. Can anything good come from our desperation? Uh, I'm going to read for you uh, from Henry David Thoreau. Famous quote. Famous quote. Thoreau is by no means a Christian. By no means, but nevertheless, he writes this famous, uh, these famous words. The mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. What is called resignation is confirmed desperation. From the desperate city, you go into the desperate country. This is Thoreau's life. It's what he does. And have to console yourself with the bravery of minks and muskrats. So stereotyped but unconscious despair is concealed even under what we call the games and amusements of mankind. There is no play in them. 
For this comes after work, but it is a characteristic of wisdom not to do desperate things. In other words, uh, in the world, we hide our desperation. Uh, and, and, uh, in, in Thoreau's book, Walden, he actually says that uh, human beings are, in fact, very desperate. Um, there's a lot, of, uh, a lot of things that can be said about, about Thoreau's quote, and I'm not going to really get into that. Uh, but we can say that his claim is that all men and women live in quiet desperation. Uh, this quiet desperation is the kind of desperation we might say that David had in Psalm 39. Uh, he had a desperation. Uh, the psalm begins this way. I hope you can read that. It's a little bit small on the screen, but I hope you can read that. It says, I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. You see the problem? You see the problem that, that, that David wants to say something because there are people who are wicked in his presence that are around him, that, are, that he wants to speak out to them. He wants to make claims. He wants to tell them that they're wrong. But he knows he shouldn't say things because there's always a right time and a wrong time to say things. Verse 2, I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail. In other words, he's got to say something. And my distress grew worse. In fact, it gets so bad. In verse 3, we read this. My heart became hot within me as I mused. In other words, as I thought about these things, the fire burned. The fire burned within me. Then I spoke with my tongue. Uh, have you ever been angry around people who express unbelief? I hope you have. I hope that that has been your response. Um, because David's heart burns within him because he knows that God's reputation is at stake. And he would get angry at anyone who would ruin God's reputation. Now, the circumstances of this are difficult to ascertain. We're not really sure exactly what they are. But verse 10 gives us a clue. And I want to show verse 10 to you. Uh, what's really going on. David says, remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. He's talking to God. He's saying, God, you have made me sick. We don't know the precise nature of the illness, but there's something going on that has made him sick. And so David says, remove your stroke from me. In other words, your touch, the Hebrew is very clear, it's really about a touch of God's hand. Not for good in this case, because it has to do with David's body. Remove your illness or your stroke from me, this illness. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. These are very vivid words. Um, God has touched David. And you know what happens when God touches the righteous? You know what happens? You know what the wicked do? Um, the wicked do one of two things. They either deny that God exists, because after all, if God existed, you wouldn't be, you know, you wouldn't be sick. You ever met anyone like that? I know people like that who would say that to me because they deny that God exists. They're atheists. Or, two, they deny God's goodness. So it's one of, the, it's one of those two things. It's court, for those who are not believers, who don't trust in God, there's only two op options here. Either God doesn't exist, so he's not involved, right? Or God simply isn't good. Um, or we could, I could say even a third thing. Maybe God exists, but he's not able to help you. But let's just leave it at those two. God does not exist, or, God's, uh, or, they, or they, do not, they deny God's goodness. Um, and it's these points that make David so desperate. 
So how about you? Certainly, all of us in this room know people who deny either the goodness of God or the existence of God. Certainly, you've got some people in your life, and maybe it's even you yourself. Maybe you don't really believe that God exists or that God is good. Uh, maybe you don't believe that God's able to that, that, that third one. I don't know. Um, if you don't care about the way that God is referred to or the way that God is spoken about, if you don't care about that, if it's not important to you, then let me suggest to you that God is not important to you. Now, I have, uh, I have friends in my life. Some of them are not believers. But when people say bad things about my friends, it bothers me. It bothers me a lot. Because even if they're not believers, I love them. And when people say bad things about the one who loves me more than anyone, which is God himself, it bugs me bad, really bad. It makes my heart burn. Sometimes I have a hard time getting to sleep thinking about the fact that there are certain people in my life who say bad things about God. And this goes on and on and on. Let me suggest that if you have people in your life who say bad things about God that your heart should burn for them. There should be a type of anger, a righteous anger. And at the same time, as soon as we get this anger, we go into prayer and we ask God to reveal himself to them. I hope that you have that experience. I hope that your heart burns with anger. David himself, he didn't want to keep his mouth shut. He couldn't keep his mouth shut. But he knew that what, for whatever reason, the circumstance wasn't right for him to speak out against them, to say things again. He wanted to tell them how wrong they were, but he doesn't do that. Rather, we read this. In ver um, oh, wrong one, wrong slide. This is the how about you slide, okay? Uh, he does this in verse 4. Oh, Lord, he, he speaks to God. Oh, Lord, make me know my end. Give me perspective. Give me perspective so I know how to respond to people, and I know what to say, I know how to feel, I know how to act. Don't let my feelings totally overwhelm me in these moments. Oh, Lord, make me know my end, and what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. It goes right to the very heart of wisdom. Now, now I took you through a few sermons in Ecclesiastes. Certainly by no means did I preached through the book. There's so much there in Ecclesiastes. We could spend months and months in that book. But so much of it is about the emptiness of life and the shortness of life. The breath of life in terms of it being very short. David goes right to the heart of wisdom. Oh Lord, make me know my end. Let me know, let me know that I'm mortal. I won't last very long here. What, let me know what is my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. And we might read that and go, wow, you know, David, you're really kind of depressing. And yet he goes right to the heart of truth. Every one of us in this room needs to have, a, have an understanding that we don't live very long. Every one of us needs to know in this room that we don't live very long, no matter how old we are or how young we are. Right? Yes, that's true. Because our lives are very short. Um, he goes on, verse 5. 
he says, behold, you have made my days a few hand breaths. Now, not very, it's like, that would be like these four fingers stretching them out, how short they are, especially with someone like me who has very little hands. As I told you before, I'm famous on my water polo team for being Little Paws because my friend Dave Weymouth called me Little Paws and I had a hard time holding the water, holding, holding the ball in the water. Very little hands, which is great. It's a great gift because it helps me to remember how small I am, right? And how, you know, maybe it keeps me humble. I don't know. I don't know. But it's probably, probably a gift. But he, but he says, behold, you have made my days a few hand breaths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely, and notice, this, notice how it broadens out. It's not just that my life is this way. Of course, I highlighted it here for you so you can see it. Not only is my life short, but then at the, the, the last line there in verse 5, surely all mankind, all humanity, stands as a mere breath. Everyone in this room is not going to live very long. 100 years from now, we're all gone. 100 years from now, we're all gone, most likely. There might be a few of us who are a little bit younger who might live to 110. I've been asking God to give me that kind of life. I, I have. I've asked the Lord. I said, could you give me a life to like 110? It's kind of crazy, but he's, he's, just, he's looking at me and shaking his head going, Paul, you know, would you stop it? Knock it off. It's all, about, it's all my stuff, you know. But, you know, I want to live a long time because I want to have an extended ministry. Um, not because I like getting older. But nevertheless, David out here says, look, all humanity, not just me, but all humanity is a mere breath. We're not here very long. So, in other words, hey, everybody, plan for the future. Jesus was always telling us to plan for the future. Plan for the future. Surely man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. In other words, humanity, human beings are really, really foolish. Super foolish. If possible, we heap up wealth. We, we try to, to pile up money so that, for what? What good is that? You're going to be gone. You can't take it with you. It's the old play, the famous play. I don't know if you ever saw that play. You can't take it with you. But nevertheless, I mean, it's just we're here and we're gone. And yet we're so foolish, uh, piling up wealth, if possible, if we can. Um, you know what David is? He's desperate. And desperation is one of God's greatest gifts. You ever thought about that? Desperation is one of God's greatest gifts. Yes, because it puts our minds in the right place. Let me take a look at that slide. There it is. Um, the problem with the wicked is that they are not desperate. Actually, Thoreau was wrong. He was actually wrong. The mass of men do not lead lives of quiet desperation. Rather, they lead lives of quiet distraction. I should have been a writer. But it's true. People in our world do not live lives of quiet desperation because as soon as they feel like they're getting desperate, they distract themselves. And boy, do we have things to distract us in our culture. We have mastered the art of distraction because we don't want to face reality. They lead lives of quiet distraction, forgetting that their days are but three score and ten. And so, you know, I mean, you don't want to face death. Don't face death. Distract yourself. 
Play those games on your iPhone or whatever it would be. Play a game on the internet. I don't know what you're going to do, but distract yourself. Watch movies, watch TV shows. I don't know, whatever, whatever, whatever you can do to forget the reality of your coming death. But desperation is one of God's greatest gifts. Uh, do you know why life is so short, by the way? It didn't have to be, right? I mean, God could have made us live for essentially forever. Of course, we sinned in the garden, and things changed. But even so, even so those generations, the biblical account is that those generations following sin, the sin, before Noah, they lived, many, they lived hundreds of years. But there are two reasons, two biblical reasons why people don't live very long. Two biblical reasons. One is, is that death is a limit on sin. It's amazing how young people who think they're going to live forever, how they just forget about God and they just live for themselves. So many people, not all of them. But when you're young, there's a sense of like, you know what? Sure, I guess death's coming someday. But come on, it's a long time. I'm going to party, right? It's so far away, who cares? Isn't that true, though? I mean, it's like, you know, I mean, death's a long way away, so forget it. You know, let's have fun now, right? God, you know, I'll deal with God later when I get old. That's how young people think. But we don't know when we're going to die. We don't know the day of our death. But, but, but uh, there are two reasons why we live short lives. One is that it's a limit on sin. And the other, and this is what I'm talking about this morning, is that it's a wake-up call. We're supposed to get desperate. We're supposed to face that desperation. You see? Something is not right. We, somehow we know. Sandra Richter, Richter, for those who have been, on thir- uh, been to the class on Thursday nights, you know what she said uh, in a couple of lectures ago. She said that we know, we know that we're supposed to live and live and live and not die. We know that we're supposed to live. There's something within us. And yet it's a wake-up call um, now, people ignore this truth, and they distract themselves, and they do foolish things. And one of the greatest examples of foolish things comes in Luke 12. And I, I want to go to Luke 12, and if you have your Bible, I didn't put it on the screen. If you have your Bible, uh, I just want us to go to Luke 12. It's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. It's one of the favorite things that Jesus told us. Um, In my Bible, it's called the Parable of the Rich Fool. Okay, so if you have a Bible, go, go to there, go to that place. Jesus was teaching, and verse thirteen, we read, "Someone in the crowd, someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, Teacher, tell my brother to the to divide the inheritance with me,' which of course means that he was thinking about the present time, right?" He is concerned about how much money he's going to have, how much wealth he's going to have, what his inheritance is going to be, because he wants to enjoy it. Hey, 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 teacher, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator with you? And he said to them, take care. 
So he takes this from the, goes from one person who has a question, and he says, that is really not important. What's important is what I'm going to tell you. And he turns to, the, turns to all the people there. And he says, take care. Take care. And be on guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. I'm telling you right now that we need to remember that line of Jesus. I mean, we need to remember that right there. That one's life does not consist in the abundance of his or her possessions. If we can get a hold of that, if the wealthy could get a hold of that, then they can begin to make sense of their lives with all the wealth that they have. And when we're poor, we can begin to make sense of our lives by knowing that we can't get material things to satisfy us. One's life does not, absolutely does not, be satisfied, cannot be satisfied with abundance of, of, of one's possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down, tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up. For many years, relax, eat, drink, and be merry. By the way, do you know what the world tells us? Because that's the good life. That's the goal, right? That's the goal of retirement. That's the goal of life, is to get as much as you can to the point where you have no worry anymore, and you just kick back and enjoy your life. Here's the problem, right? You go into judgment. God's going to judge you. This is what Jesus says. See, But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? You see, you and I have no control over our material possessions. We think we do, but we don't know if we're going to die tonight. You might wake up in the judgment. Then who's your possessions going to belong to? And I don't care if you have the greatest will in the whole, that any lawyer can design. It isn't going to change fully the problem. Because maybe you want your wealth to go to your daughter. But you don't know who your daughter's going to marry. True? You don't really know. You have no control over where your wealth goes, if you even have wealth. You may have a son go, oh, I trust my son. He'll do the right thing. But then comes this little sweetheart along who is all about getting his money, which was your money. Friends, do not live for these things. Because you have no control over what's going to happen to them. Be ready for the judgment. So what Jesus is saying. Verse 21. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. That's the answer, right? Desperation leads us to being rich toward God. Be desperate for him. Call out, on his, call out his name. Ask him to show you the truth. And to live in obedience to him. Um, I, I love what George MacDonald said. Uh, C.S. Lewis uh, used this in his writings. Everything difficult, see, every challenge, 
every problem, everything that gets to us and creates angst, everything difficult indicates, I love this, indicates something more than our theory of life yet embraces. Check some tendency to abandon the straight path, leaving open only the way ahead. In other words, the fact that we have these problems, the fact that these are, there's all these difficult things and we can't seem to solve them, means that our lives are worth more and are about more than that particular problem. They point to a greater reality. He's, his words are in the context of prayer, but nevertheless, it speaks to the fact that we have no excuse but to, but to get passionate and to be desperate for an understanding of life. Difficulties make us desperate. But look at the way that David deals with his desperation. And now, Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. And this is what God is calling, to, calling us to in the season of Advent. Today is Advent. Here we see in David's words, Yes, yesterday, a, a really good friend of mine uh, took me to see a bunch of airplanes. And, it, okay, I'm not, it's not, it is on. Okay. Yesterday, I, okay. Uh, he was so amazed. Can you hear me? Still can't hear me. There you go. Anyway, yesterday, a good friend of mine took me to see a bunch of airplanes, right? And they're just like amazing airplanes. And he could not believe how much I understood and how mecha mechanical I really am. Yeah, whatever. It was like, I didn't even know what to say. He's like, so, uh, you have any questions? you have any questions? And I'm like, uh, well, uh, I don't even know what to ask. I have no clue what to ask, you know? All I know is that there are a million buttons here, you know? Anyway, it was a wonderful experience, but... Uh, okay, so back to this, though. Back to this message, okay? Uh, and now, Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Actually, the truth is, is that when we look at the person of David in this context, we actually see that he's a type... Of, he's really a microcosm for all of Israel, he is the one through whom the Messiah is going to come. But you know what's going to happen soon, right? The nation is going to be crushed. They're going to be that stump that we talked about, or that I made reference to when I opened the service. And there's this message calling out to all of us who would look for the coming of God. Hope in God. Hope in God. Hope in God. Um, and, and, and there is no other place to be. No other one to hope in. So we come to communion. Because communion is about hope. It's about this, the, the fact that we have no one else to look to. This is his table. When Jesus went to the cross, it looked as though it was all dying. All hope was lost. The world would interpret that as hope is gone. It's the dead, burned out stump thing that's not coming back. The reality is, is that Jesus knew that his hope would be realized.
And so when we come to communion, we participate in Jesus' own hope. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord God, as we come to Holy Communion, we ask that you would pour yourself out upon this bread and this cup and this fellowship and this place and this experience that we would be transformed in the people who do hope, but not hope in a, in a kind of a wimpy, kind of uh, flimsy way, but have an assurance of hope because we know that Jesus is returning soon. So as we participate in the bread and in the cup, may you reveal, to yourself, reveal yourself and make this a reality. Come, Lord Jesus. Maranatha. Amen.